Kia ora. Welcome to Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. I'm Andrew Dixon. It's good to have you here. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations. Today we've got the privilege of hearing from Takarari Fitiao Scarborough. I first knew Takarari as a spoken word poet, a member of the influential South Auckland Poets Collective and a winner of a range of poetry slams. So that's where we start the conversation. But with Takarari's mahi at the parenting place, we quickly get on to parenting and the bicultural shift in the organisation in recent years to better represent the Te or Waitangi. It's a conversation full of authenticity, hilarity, and some thought-provoking whakaro or thoughts. And I even get schooled at one point about the treasures in Pākehā culture and history, so keep your ear out for that. This is episode 10 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's to Karari Whitiao Scarborough. This journey is always messy. <laughs> It's always messy. And the reason that it is messy is conversations around identity and belonging, they cut so close to the bone, man. Cool, so I'm here today with Takarari Fitiao Scarborough. Welcome. Kia ora, bro. Really lovely to, to see you, our Zoom even, and, uh, yeah. and, and connect again. It's been a long time. Has been. So let's just start with uh, Nohia Queer. Uh, who are you, bro? Where are you from? Yeah. Um, what makes you you? Oh, he pato ho honu tera. <laughs> um, I was brought up in Tamaki Makoto. My mother moved down here um, in her twenties from a place in the north called Whangarei, and so where she's from, which is actually just um, a little bit uh, north of Whangarei, is a little place called Poroti, and so that's where my mother and all my whānau are from on that side. Uh, my biological father is English. He's th- three generations deep, actually, in Auckland City. And so my great-grandfather came over um, from England, and my great-grandmother was from Ireland. But um, there's another really amazing man that's been in my life. He ended up with my mother when I was about four or five. His name is Morehu Kara, and he uh, he's from a place called Ngāti Hauwā. Uh, and so um, through Whāngai, I really uh, strongly affiliate and link to Ngāti Hauwā and Tainui as well. Um, and so, yeah, those are all of the different kind of facets that that, that, that make me me. And um, a very special addition uh, when I married my wife was her iwi, um, so close connections to Ngaitaiki Tāmaki, which is just in a little place called Maraitai here in, in Auckland. And... Um, Probably spend a lot more time out there on their path than on my own because of how close it is to, to our home in Auckland, yeah. Cool. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, my, my first encounter with you was uh, back at Edge Kingsland Church, uh, where we both went up in Auckland. And uh, and I remember you and, and our friend Dietrich uh, both got up and shared poems, uh, the spoken word thing that I hadn't encountered before. Uh, and for me, that was like a real... Uh, I guess life-changing moment seeing the two of you do that and going, man, I want to do that. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I've got into subsequent to that. But what what was it that drew you into doing the poetry stuff? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we're from oral traditions, both Dietrich, who's Tongan, Samoan, and just a mishmash of the whole of the Pacific, uh, and myself as Māori, and so I suppose that was a natural thing that was modelled to us. Um, but specifically, my journey goes like this. Like most kids who were brought up in Onihonga, loved hip-hop growing up, mostly West Coast stuff, and uh, and I didn't have aspirations to be a rapper back in the day um, because it wasn't a legitimate career path as it is now. Um, but... Uh, loved rapping, and I remember I was about 16, and I showed my friend, my bloody new um William Tungehulu, closest friend ever, and they go, bro, I've got some rhymes, and I showed him them, and he was like, wow, these are mean, bro, but your voice is just real ugly in the raps, eh? And I was like, <laughs> I, was like I laughed, like, crack, because there's such a thing the best friend would say, real, like, kōrero pono, real truthful talk um but i actually didn't write many rhymes after that you know i was like oh maybe i'll just give that (laughs) give that a miss and then there was a girl um and i she was part of a a crew called the south auckland poets collective and uh and and i was kind of you know really stalking all of them and uh, and i went and watched her do a poem uh, about being half cast uh, and she's an amazing, amazing poet. But the thing that caught me more than anything was in her three-and-a-half-minute poem, she both, like, messed up my head and my heart, and mm. I'd never gone through an experience before as strong as that where those two things were, like, firing on all cylinders mm. uh, in really, really powerful ways. And actually w- what I went on to find out about spoken word poetry or poetry in general as a form of um, social change is that you can say things in poetry to the being of someone that you can't just say to them in other contexts. And so that yeah. was, um, yeah, that was, um, that was what Grace taught me uh, in that first mm. instance and, and, and yeah, what a, was a big part of my life. Yeah. And how have you seen that? I mean, obviously you, you have a faith. How have you seen your poetry sitting with in around whatever your faith um, is it been a part of that journey for you yeah I mean I, I think I think what's been interesting around kind of my own faith journey and poetry has been finding words or language or other people's words and language to describe some of the stuff that's going on um, you know within my own heart within my own mind and, and making sense of the world around me so that was really 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 cool um what was cool about um, writing poetry, especially within an art scene that, uh, you know, sometimes, um, not sometimes, a lot of the time it can be a difficult place to be a Christian, um, mm. especially, you know, when we have such pretty terrible traditions that follow you in uh, in your baggage through the door. Um, so it was really, really confronting, but it was a really, really cool experience to be knee deep in the arts community and to, mm. um, you know, rub up against people who I love, who are the most amazing people, but had the most complete opposite views in the world. And the thing that drew mm. us there, almost mirroring like a faith community, the thing that drew us there was um, the love of words, of beautiful composition, of expression and our own stories. And so there was mm. something almost even greater than, you know, the content of what we were saying or even the content of our lives. It was this yeah. idea that, you know, we will meet each other in, in that honest conversation and that honest talk and that's enough to hold us it was really cool bro Mm. yeah that's awesome I I mean I've found the same that in those environments especially like that spoken word scene is it's become a a way to have a voice for communities that or for people that 
tend not to get a voice in society. Yeah. And so you are rubbing up against a whole lot of people that are completely different. Um, and actually that's how it should be. Yeah. Um, if we just hang out with people like ourselves all the time, that's nothing like Jesus. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, now where people might've more recently bumped into you, uh, cause you were saying just before we started recording that you're not really known as a poet much anymore. No, no, I'm, a, but I'm all these young guns. Honestly, there's no, I can't hop yeah. on a stage anymore. There's no room for me. <laughs> but, um, but one thing that you have been called recently uh, during the lockdown period, you, you appeared on a number of uh, media platforms uh, touted as a parenting expert. Mm. Um, all of us parents would really like to know, how does one become a parenting expert, bro? How does that well, work? Do as I say and not as I do there, brother. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, so so that's part of your, your um, work for the parenting place. Yeah. And that's somewhere you've been for quite a while. Um, so how did you get involved with them um, and, and what drew you to that sort of work and what is it that you do there? Yeah, so my involvement at Parenting Place is like 15 years deep. So pretty much straight out of high school, bro, uh, there was one failed university year and then I started in what was... Um, known as the youth department or the youth sector of the parenting place organization, yeah. an organization called Attitude. And so as a 19-year-old, um, just turned 20-year-old, I was cruising around high schools talking about drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Um, and and I, I did that for about four years before I became the manager of that. And then I kind of just grew into more and more Excel sheets, to mm. be honest. Um, and so, <laughs> and so, um, and so found myself at the end of 14 years, um, in a role called program director. And so overseeing yeah. maybe 60, 65 staff, um, but who were doing work in communities from, you know, the bluff all the way up to the Hokianga, Māori communities, Parker communities, parenting, young people, um, you know, helping mothers to, 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 build strong relationships with their kids um, in person. So a whole bunch of, of really, really cool programs. Um, so, yeah, that's that, that, that's how you uh, you sheepishly end up on television um, with the title <laughs> Parenting Expert, which I didn't like, actually. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, media, just they do what they do to try and convince people who might not be interested in what you have to say that you're worth listening to. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you, you were involved in that over, over lockdown, uh, what were some of the the things that you heard back from people that they found helpful and in, in the kind of things that you and others at the parenting place were saying? Yeah, I, I mean, the truth is this, is that um, there is so much information out there, actually really, really wonderful information um, on what it looks like to practically parent that, you know, disseminating information isn't the goal anymore because mm. um, people can find really, really good information um, really quickly. The issue is trying to humanize the parent as not being superhuman. And so, yeah. you know, we did a whole bunch of research around um, around the parenting groups that we were running throughout the country, which was like close to 4,000 a year. And uh, the two things that happened uh, in those parenting programs that made the biggest amount of difference was A, uh, other parents seeing other parents not being perfect and, and actually, you know, yeah. them not feeling alone. Just the idea of them not feeling alone. And number two, just building their own self-efficacy or their actual own belief in their talents. So it wasn't even to do with the particular things or um, or strategies they implemented. That came secondary. It was the idea that they could be a good parent or they were a good yeah. parent that actually changed the arc of their parenting more than anything else. And so in an information age, 
um, ironically, the thing which is uh, changing lives is not the application of the information because there's such an abundance. It's the belief in parents that actually good enough is good enough and they can do a good job um, when there are a whole bunch of messages saying that, you know, maybe we're not getting it right. Yeah. Yeah, I remember sending you a message at one stage in that lockdown saying, you know, my mantra had been something, what you just said, um, I, I saw you speaking on Seven Sharp and said, you know, good enough parenting is good enough at the moment. Yeah. And that was what I needed to hear in the lockdown, you know, that um, you, you're trying to work from home, you're trying to parent your kids, you're trying to teach your kids because you're doing school, they're doing schoolwork as well. Um, it, it was all new. It was all different. And to hear someone go, actually, this isn't about getting it right. This isn't about getting it perfect. You know, we're all in this really strange boat. <laughs> we're all in lots of different boats. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's okay to just be okay. Um, and so yeah, uh, definitely resonated with me. And and um, so I hear what you're saying that that actually that's really important to to get to the heart of the parent rather than the the mind of the parent i guess i mean the parenting is the great equalizer of the whole of mankind because it doesn't matter you know what educational experience you have whether you're the ceo or you're not the ceo every single adult has been brought to their knees by a two-year-old who will not eat the crust on a toast you know the reality is is that all of these skills that we build up to have a successful Mm -hmm. life or to do well in life all of these skills that we've invested so greatly in doesn't actually translate to the skills that we need just to have that human-to-human contact, human-to-human interaction, and actually not take our kids' um, behaviour as, like, a personal offence against who we are. You know, and so um, that's why I love being Māori so much, because you can draw on these different examples of what it means to be human and what it looks like to prioritise some of those other values far beyond, um, you know, just... Um, the economy or, or, or other major value systems which can uh, influence us. Mm. What are some of the, the your favourite moments, I guess, of working in the parenting place, of seeing breakthrough for people or um, of of seeing what you guys are doing making a difference? Yeah, I mean, one of the challenging things for the mahi that we've engaged with is that there's a really, really wide spectrum, mate. Eh? really wide spectrum of whānau that we engage with. Um, and that's a, that's a real challenge around trying to do each of those things well. Um, but some of the stories, which I'll, I'll never forget, um, I remember there was um, some of our facilitators up in the north, they were working with a whānau and, um, and that whānau had lost some of their kids through sifske or oranga tamariki. And mm-hmm. um, they had engaged on a journey uh, to getting their kids back and they'd been really successful in, um, in getting rid of some of the dysfunction that was going on and actually, um, you know, just, just being the people who they were created to be really. Um, they get a few of their kids back and for a one or two weeks, um, you know, they've actually become parenting program facilitators. They're doing really, really amazing mahi and the father has a heart attack and passes away. Wow. Um, but the resounding memory in that whānau was that those kids were with that person in that last couple of weeks when it really, really mattered because I'd put the mahi in. And so for that whānau, yeah, right. um, it was a really transformational moment that that's where they were going, even though their father had passed away. 
And the cool story mm. is the the um, the wahine and that the mother in that whanau, she went on to keep delivering those building of some whanau parenting programs in that community um, because of kind of that testament that they'd gone, or the testament wow. um, of her, her tāne, as well as the direction that they were going in, which is really, really cool. And then there's like way on the other end of the spectrum, you know, Pākehā whānau in Green Lane, Auckland, um, there was a father who came in, he had recently split up with um, with with his partner, um, they had a teenage daughter, and he was like, I need to go and do some parenting programs. So he ends up at Parenting Place, and he's doing a parenting program, and every night that he has custody of his teenage girl, he'll go home after the program, and they'll go through some of the material, they'll talk about it, which is really, really cool. Anyways... <laughs> He gets a phone call from his ex, and the ex goes, what are you doing to our daughter? Now, you can imagine the tension that's going on in this particular phone conversation. He goes, I don't know. What do you mean? What's wrong? And uh, and she goes, "Uh, our daughter is different. And he goes, oh, I don't know. I've been going to this parenting program. We've been talking about it. And the ex-wife actually goes on to say that her daughter had like radically changed the way that she was engaging the world based on those conversations and his parenting techniques. And wow. so he was really, really cheeky, but he actually he flicks her the next call states uh, and says, maybe you should check it out, which is like a time bomb ready to go off. And she turned up to the next call states, bro. And wow. so through the testament of the daughter and the father, um, you know, even through the separation, actually, there were some really, really cool ways that we were helping that whanau, which, yeah, I'm really proud of those stories. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, for anyone who's been watching The Parenting Place over the last number of years, uh, one thing that's really evident, as well as all this awesome mahi that you're doing, is that you've increasingly, increasingly become really um, aware of uh, the bicultural nature of this country um, and it's become a really important part of what you guys are doing do you want to just talk a little bit about what that journey has been like for you as an organization and um, I guess how you've seen that at work and what you're doing yeah but I mean big big conversation a really big journey mm. uh, for us as an organization and I have to say that um, uh, it's this journey is always messy <laughs> <laughs> It's always messy. And the reason that it is messy is conversations around identity and belonging, they cut so close to the bone, man. Um, And so the difference between getting it wrong and getting it right can be a meeting or a missed opportunity or, um, you know, an event which which can turn something that was really great to something that's quite difficult. And so, um, yeah, for anyone who's engaging in a journey that's similar, I want to encourage you that it's one of the most worthwhile things you can do, but prepare, <laughs> prepare, because <laughs> it's hard. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I found myself at the centre of that story because I'd been there for so long as one of the only Māori employees, and I found myself in senior leadership. And so the way that our story unfolded was there was a guy called Greg Fleming um, who came into an organisation And the interesting thing about Greg Fleming is he had uh, started up a few organisations. One of them uh, is Maxim, which my perception of, I actually like them a lot lot now. I I think they're really, really cool. But my perception was kind of conservative, more right-wing, you know, Mm. Christians lobbying the government on particular issues that have nothing to do with indigeneity. So he starts that organisation. I've got this particular impression of him. 
But what I don't realize is all of those tools that he had to learn to undo um, or to understand a Christian worldview are the same tools that would allow him to engage with the Māori world and a Māori mm. worldview and Māori spirituality um, in a really honest and really compelling way. He comes into the organization and uh, he invites a whole bunch of different Māori to step up. So me and Peel today, who had been in there for a long, long time, uh, he invites other people in like Te Waka, uh, Hannah Chapman, um, there was also Rangi Kipa, all these different people into the organization. But me specifically, he asked me to do something I'd never been asked before in a Pākehā organization or a church, I might add. And he goes, mm-hmm. you know how we get you to turn down your Māoriness? You know, like we want a bit of it, but not all of it. I want you to really turn that up. And so um, what that meant was the litmus test for us is can you be Māori in this organisation or not? And if you can't, then we're not doing good enough. Now, the truth is some people have said, yep, I can be. Some people have said, no, there's no way I can be. And we've rubbed up against kind of some of our own expectations of what that looks like. Um, But the deep compulsion of parenting place is to ask the question, what does it mean to be for all whānau in Aotearoa? And mm-hmm. that inevitably, inevitably lead you down the path of what does it mean for Māori to be Māori and for tangata o te tiriti, people here invited by the treaty um, to mm-hmm. occupy that space well. And so treacherous territory, bro, but, uh, but, but, but meaningful work. It's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's treacherous territory to go down um, because you unearth, you know, some of our biggest, deepest insecurities about being human and that's do I belong here or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a huge question that I think is really important that, like you say, in terms of church stuff, what do we as the church look like and can you be Māori in the church or do you have to leave your Māoriness at the door to join a a church that's claiming to be multicultural but is actually colonial um, in its essence? So, yeah, that's, that's a good challenge for for not just businesses but also for churches. Yeah, and um, you know, I, I mean, I, Alistair Reese, um, Lillian Murray. I mean, these are Naomi Reese. These are some of the people, like amazing park here, who I look up to, and I'm like, they're just owning their space, man. They're just like they're mm-hmm. just they're just being Pakeha, um, and they are pushing themselves to be able to cross all of those different boundaries in life, whether it's age or religion or culture, without losing the essence of what they're now kind of framing up as their Pākehā tanga, mm. um, to be a person of the treaty. And so, you know, like there are these amazing examples in our community of what it looks like, what it looks like to engage in a Māori world without just kind of, um, you know, pillaging all of the tonga for yourself. Uh, It's kind of how do you engage in these worlds for the benefit of the other, not just the benefit of yourself. Inevitably, it leads to the benefit for yourself anyways. But um, Mm. yeah, it's, 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 it's cool work. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, Did you find during this process that um, you were bumping into, I guess, this is coming from my own personal experience of of trying to be part of this sort of journey and hearing Pākehā saying, well, you're just trying to get us to be Māori. Is that something you bumped up against? Um, I think inevitably the challenge of Māori culture engaging with New Zealand Pākehā culture, if I was to be really specific, is mm-hmm. New Zealand parkia culture it feels formless it feels like it doesn't exist because it's the norm and so when you come across maori culture it's so starkly different 
Um, actually, what happens is people feel lost in this. Well, if that's what culture looks like and feels like for you, then I don't have that or I don't have anything that's as strong or as clear. And so there are kind of two different ways that Parky adopt uh, or, or engage with that. The first thing is they recoil from that, that feeling of being excluded or not feeling confident or feeling insecure in those spaces. Or they just completely adopt all of that Māori culture and forget like their own Pākehā heritage. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and both of those... Uh, both of those outworkings of the problem you just mentioned are, are problematic for a whole bunch of different ways. Mm. Um, I think inevitably your own understanding of who you are and what makes you you is actually the platform that allows you to engage with and love the other. Um, mm. Because without a deep sense of what makes you different, um, the value of what, what makes you the same is kind of it's, it's reduced. Um, mm. You know, we look for these kind of common human goals or values, um, but for the minority or especially for Māori, um, they're so used to um, code switching or, or, or changing. It feels really frustrating for people who don't want to do the same, who don't want to mm. kind of a, a apply the same effort to exist in our world that we've had to, to exist in the world of the other. And so, mm. um, and so, yeah, it's, I, I do feel sorry for, for Pākehā who, who are unable to find the motivation to keep pursuing that journey um, yeah. because actually at the end of that journey is the discovery of who they were really created to be and the things that make them them. And instead, you know, we've got global values or, you know, corporations who end up dictating to us what makes us us, which is very unhelpful. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, and that's a really good thing for us Pākehā to hear that, that actually um, this isn't about losing ourselves in this. This is about actually finding ourselves in this and what makes us unique and how we can partner with Māori um, rather than trying to do everything one way or the other. Let me ask you a question, bro. Let me ask you a question. Let's do a little test. Uh, what values, behaviours or history as a Pākehā are you proud of or do you absolutely love? Like what about being Pākehā do you love, bro? What are you so proud of about being Pākehā? Yeah, I thought about this quite... quite um a lot when when my kids had uh, like cultural day at school and and all the Maori were dressing up in Maori culture stuff and and um and all the we, we had Indian kids and Filipino kids all in their cultural costumes and and our kids are like do we put on an all black jersey yeah. <laughs> what do we do with that um, but yeah I I guess for me um, that was a huge question I. I I struggled with that because I was I was in that boat of going, look, I do I have a culture? What does that look like? And and then I realised actually, that's part of part of that for me is about having lost my fucker papa, mm-hmm. you know that I didn't know where I was from, you know I didn't know, uh, and as I've explored that more, I just I love the background of my Irish and uh, Scottish heritage, and I love the the deep Celtic ways of spirituality. So for me, those things have become really valuable. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think there's some really positive things. Uh, it's it's really easy to see all the negative things once you start on this journey to go, oh man, my culture's so individualistic and my culture's this and, you know, all the other. But um, uh, yeah, I, I love that, that I've been able to start discovering th- some of those things and go, actually, you know, there's these rich histories in my whanau. 
to to be honest, yeah, that's a that's a terrible answer, bro. <laughs> it's a, it's a, you've you've got thousands of years worth of history to draw yeah. upon, which I draw upon, yeah. and you're you know you're going back to Celtic thought, which is just similar yeah. to Indigenous thought, which I love. But um, yeah. let, I mean, let's talk about the English language, bro. The English language is a masterpiece in assimilating. Uh, different words and different concepts from a whole bunch of languages and smushing them together. You know, the idea that the English language can both communicate some beautiful ideas through poetry and is ruthlessly efficient. I mean, what a masterclass in the way languages have been constructed. Now, it can only do that because it's, you know, really, really difficult to learn if you're trying to learn and it doesn't make sense. It's not as logical as you'd want it to be. But the English language is is a, is actually a gift, bro. Now, would I rather yeah. be speaking English or Māori? Probably Māori. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not a gift. Let's think yeah. about the Magna Carta, bro. The idea that in a particular time in history, theology drove people to believe that we were all equal under God. You know, the concept yeah. of our democracy is like, it's a really wonderful idea. And although there was consensus kind of decision-making within Māori communities, which I love and is my preference, you know, the idea that these powerful hierarchies were being brought to their knees by the idea of the collective, like that's your yeah. that's your history, bro. Let's go back yeah. even further, you know, to like Greek philosophy, the full extension of logic as kind of this really rational way of unpacking an idea I mean, it is a it is a really helpful tool in lots of different ways as we start to understand what it means to be human, what it means to um, apply ideas and laws. I mean, all of this stuff is amazing. The problem is mm. when you turn those values way up and they're the dominant yeah. values for a long time and there's no space for other whakaro, that's when they're problematic. But, you yeah. know, like, you, I, I th- I'm going to challenge you to do better, bro, mm. to own actually yeah. parts of your own history because we benefit from aspects of Pākehā tanga every single day. And how come I yeah. know that stuff but Pākehā don't even know it, you know? Yeah. And I think you're uh, – um, that's a huge challenge. Thank you. Um, I, I think you're right that it's so easy to not see that stuff because that's what we're used to as normal. Um, and, you know, I find that a challenge doing theology. You know, we label – um, indigenous theology and womanist theology and black theology but what we just call theology if we're really honest is old white men theology but actually again some of that is just amazing you know you look back at through some of those great theologians um, you know the Bonhoeffers huge huge numbers of of people who have contributed and the key is going actually this is part of the Pākehā story and acknowledging that it's part of that story, contributing to others, rather than going, this is the story, yeah, in a way that diminishes others. Um, so, yeah, that's a that's a great challenge to bring, bro. My, my mate, he, uh, Roshan Allpress, he's the principal of, of Laidlaw, but he's just the mm. gun, bro. Um, he always reminds me not to project modern culture or modernity back onto previous expressions of Western culture, you know, you have mm. a look at Thomas Aquinas or you have a look at Augustine, you have a look at these kind of great kind of monsters of theology and faith, and they were living in community in a way that we aren't today. You know, post-industrialization yeah. uh, kind of modern culture is not the same as those different people. So we can't just project this onto that. They, yeah. Their worlds are worth being explored and there are things in their cultures that are worth leaving, but definitely things worth reclaiming too, bro. 
Mm. Now, I mean, to be honest, my task is decolonizing theology because I want to know what Maori culture and yeah. a uh, and a Jewish man look like. That's my primary focus uh, as mm. as I kind of engage in the theological world, and that's a part of my study here up at St John's Theological College. That's the primary question. Um, mm. But I, it's difficult finding conversation partners who are able to engage in this space all of the time because there is either this absolute defense of western christianity as the only way or they just mm. fall over themselves and they feel so sorry about being western or being pakia that actually there's there's kind of not that give and take you know it's not that wonderful relationship yeah. where you're both going um we want this and don't want that or we love this but we should leave that um which i, I think is the call actually for uh for pakia to own own their own culture and own your own space mm-hmm. that's awesome in terms of um, you owning your culture, uh, that's been a huge journey for you personally as well as as in the parenting place. Um, because when I first met you, you, you had a different name. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's just one really obvious part of it. But but do you want to just describe a little bit of that journey? Um, how did the name change come about? What does that mean for you? And, and what are you trying to do in terms of embracing your culture as whānau yeah. um, with, with your kids and beyond? Um, I mean, my journey, I, I was brought up with a Māori mother and a Māori matofangai or, you know, stepfather, and that was the predominant kind of mode of engaging the world. So we were go to marae and pokai, and, and, and that was our world. Majority of their friends were Māori. That was, that was kind of what I grew up with. Um, I was a typical urbanised Māori, even though my stepfather could speak Māori beautifully, you know, I was, I was into kind of mucking around and just having fun rather than doing some of that old boring marae stuff. Um, and wasn't in a good space really by the end of my teenage years. And I meet Jesus in a particular context, uh, it was a version of Australian Pentecostalism, um, mm-hmm. which was really amazing uh, in introducing me to Jesus and actually dealing with a lot of dysfunction that was in my life at that time. And so I'm very, very grateful to C3 and Primal and those contexts for being like, this is what unhealthy lives look like. This is what more healthy lives look like. We'll take you as an individual, not your community, but we'll take you as an individual and we'll put you in these radical contexts of love and change and hope. And that happened and I, I changed quickly, bro. It's like overnight, mm. my, my life was, was different and I didn't have the anger that I used to have growing up. There's a whole bunch of stuff which, which the Lord did on me in those contexts. The problem was, though, that not just that context, but even at Parenting Place, there was this limit on what it means to be human, understanding that from a cultural um, context, because, you know, they're informed by theologies that are mostly Pākehā at that time. And so they knew how to take me out of dysfunction and into a form of health. But the next question, which is, what does it look like to be a flourishing Māori Christian? Mm. They couldn't They couldn't meet that gap. And so I actively, like, I didn't just kind of do it subconsciously. I actively suppressed being Māori in many different contexts um, because mm. my perception of faith, of Jesus, of what it meant to be Christian looked like sitting up the front of the hall, um, being the preacher or wanting to be the preacher mm. and listening to, you know, Australian Christians talk about, um, you know, what the kingdom of earth looked like. Um, I have my kids, though, in my early 20s. And it's funny eh, how you project onto your kids a different version of life that you want for them, even than the one that you've kind of accepted yourself. 
And I gave my son uh, a few Māori names, my wife and I, Paora Matariki. And, um, and that really started the journey of being like, okay, what's mm. the history of my name uh, in that process? So, you know, for me, the story of Christianity and whiteness, very, very close together. And as yeah. I started uh, talking to different people who were amazing Māori Christians and started unpacking what it meant to have a faith that makes made sense in the Māori world on the marae through karakia, the mismatch mm. just grew and grew and grew. Um, I remember in my late twenties, just to, I'm sorry, I'll get back on task talking about the name. No, this is, this is all all good, bro. My my mid twenties, I asked my mum. I was like, "Oh, mum, how come you called me Zane? My name was it. How come you called me Zane?" And she goes, "Oh, I like the letter Z." And that was the extent of the conversation in the mid eighties when I was born. And I, I thought about that for a long time because she, in her own journey, had reclaimed her name, bro. Born Fitzial, which is the middle name that I've taken. Um, Fitzial is the name of a famous princess uh, where I'm from up north who was married to another fellow named uh, Tirado Kukupa. Oh, no, sorry, married to Kukupa who had the son Tirado. And um, and she was known for the whole of her life as Raywin, bro. And it wasn't until her 40s that she actually went back to Fitzial as her name of choice. And mm-hmm. so I asked her, where did Zane come from? I like the letter Z. And I asked her, would you consider renaming me? And even for her who had been through that process herself, she was tentative, bro. Yeah. And this gave me a real insight into the way names form powerful bonds with people. She was so sentimental around the name Zane that even though she knew that there were these other places that we could look at uh, for richness around meaning and fulfillment and naming myself and cultural heritage and all of that, she was wedded to Zane, bro. So it took her six to seven years to come around to the idea of giving me a different name. Mm. Yeah. And so once she was ready, we ended up going through the naming process and, um, and we actually did it together. So she'd bring a name and we'd talk about it. Um, And she went through a whole bunch of different tupuna names and some of them would crack up. I won't name them because I don't want to tuck a heel on the money of those tupuna, but you know, Mm. she brought a name to me and I was like, Oh, that's a beautiful name. Who was that person, mum? And she was like, oh, yeah, he was a pretty ruthless guy, eh? Killed a lot of people in this area and this area. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah. Um, is there anyone a bit more ngāwari, mama? You know, like anyone a bit, you know, more softer, you know, kind of, you know, the Lord and all that stuff. And uh, and she was like, okay, okay. And, uh, and, and the funny part of the story, I actually wanted to take her name, bro. And so I go up to my mum and I go, mum, I'm going to take your name. Is that okay? And she goes, oh, you, you go ask our old people. So I went home to my marae and I asked uh, some of our old people and they said, yep, you do that. Uh, I forgot to ask my wife, though, what she thought about her. <laughs> and so I go home one night and I'm like, babe. And my wife is very supportive of the name change. I go, babe, my name is going to be Fitzial. And she looks at me real cross-eyed and she's like, oh. I don't know, bro. And I was like, it's my mother's name. How dare you say that? And she just goes, oh, I don't want to have pillow talk with Fitzial, man. That's too weird. <laughs> <laughs> and I was angry because I was like, you're standing on the money of my mother's name. And so we didn't talk about it for like two weeks, bro. And then I come back to her and I say, I'm going to do it. And she goes, okay, on one condition. It's a true story. One condition. I'll call you Fitzial if you call me my father's name, Alan. And I paused and I said, <laughs> all right, you win. 
<laughs> and so Pitiao went to a middle name and we ended up on the name Tikarere, which is actually the name of uh, one of my brothers who was a stillborn between my mother and my stepfather. And the wow. whakapapa of that name is he was called Tikarere because of how fast the news travelled it was passing. And so wow. within traditional Māori culture, there were three kind of categories for naming. There was memorialising, which is that type mm-hmm. of name. Um, there was naming after a tūpuna, uh, or there was sometimes a tohunga would look at a characteristic in the child and see it as a baby and say, I can see this particular quality and I'd give it out of that name. So, um, mm. you know, though, though out of those three kind of major forms of, of, of giving names for Māori, my one belongs in the memorial memorial area. Mm. Oh, that's that's a cool journey. Um, yeah, I remember that the poem that you did about naming your son. Um, and yeah, finding that really powerful, but also laughing at your jokes about naming it so the teachers couldn't say it. Um, (laughs) To torture. Well, he's ended up in in, in Rumaki or or Māori immersion units, and so that hasn't been such a a problem. problem. uh, Um, So so in terms of this whole journey for you, you're you're not uh, full-time at Parenting Place anymore. Do you want to just tell us about what you're up to now and, and why it is that you're doing that? So um, in my final year of Parenting Place full-time work, which was last year, I was a crazy person. Me, Jay Duka, Te Waka, um, McLeod, Nehana, Tanisha, Rangi Kipper, we actually started up a new organisation called Oati. So I'm working for the Parenting Place. We set up a new Māori Christian organisation called Oati. And then I get given a sabbatical to learn to do Māori full-time. So I did all three of these things terribly. <laughs> Terribly. Um, but with these new conversation partners and, you know, really close friends of mine, uh, there was this kind of question, which was, well, where to now after I finished my sabbatical learning to do Māori? And I really felt called at the end of last year that um, that if you were going to reclaim language, it's if you have the opportunity to do it, you can't do it part-time. You know, it needs to be the main thing to not just have real that can exist when you're doing a fire corridor, but everyday deal. Mm. We're just talking about cooking stuff in the kitchen or cleaning the toilet or, you know, taking mm. talking to the kids about Donald Trump or whatever. There's actually another level of fluency, everyday language, which you have to work really, really hard to reclaim. And so mm. um, I was going to an Anglican church at the time, still, still am, um, in the Tikanga Māori and a guy named Lyndon Drake, Reverend Dr. Lyndon Drake, um, had a chat to me around where I was at. And him and the Bishop of Te Taitokiro, Bishop Kito, um, they offered me a four-year scholarship at um, St. John's Theological College up here in Meadowbank in Auckland. And and so what I'm doing full-time actually this year is studying theology and te reo Māori. And next year I'm going to go into a three-year kurakaupapa Māori teaching degree, paid for by the church, to learn te reo Māori. And so my role with um, both Oati and Parenting Place is more like speaking heads. So I deliver some programs, I'll do some of the TV stuff for them. But my full-time gig is actually just studying and filling up the wells mm. um, to engage in community context in, I don't know, probably 10 years' time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how long my study will be. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Just as we as we wrap things up, is there anything else that uh, you would say to anyone who's uh, either Māori considering exploring their roots or um, to anyone else who wants to engage in, I guess, just taking a step into something more of, of the journey of what it means to live in Aotearoa and uh, what it means to live under t- Tiriti. God 
really cares about culture. He cares a lot about culture. And discovering who God is through those cultural lenses is one of the most beautiful ways to live life. You know, for me, as I pray in Māori, and I'm in Māori contexts where Māori spirituality and Christianity um, exist, it's it's another version of being human that I just long and yearn for that I've never experienced in any other context. And so that reclamation piece for Māori is really, really important um, because God, God cares about culture. You know, in Ephesians, when people roll out that verse about neither you know, um, mm. Jew nor Greek nor man nor woman. Uh, that has been used as a weapon to like homogenize culture yeah. and Christianity. The truth is, is Paul, who's just ridiculous, FYI, um, he is saying to the Judaizers, to the staunch Jewish people, nah, you're wrong. No culture can have a monopoly on the person of Jesus and no tikkun yeah. can have a monopoly on the person of Jesus. But what he's not saying is culture is bad or culture is wrong. He's going, you know, this Jesus is for everyone. And so mm-hmm. the, the cultural mandate out of Genesis to fill the world up, you know, uh, for me, a part of that cultural mandate is to use our cultures to glorify who God is and to decolonize some of these uh, attitudes or beliefs about who we think God are um, at the same time. And so, yeah, if you are Māori, there is a, another version of spirituality which is inviting you, calling you, um, you know, karangatia uh, to, to you around what it means to be human. For Pākehā, mm. man, it's shaky ground as you transition um, from what it means to, to be normal to actually to be in uncomfortable contexts, but it's worth it. Honestly, it's it's there's a there's a beauty in relationship uh, that can only be found if you're going um, halfway with people, um, and they're not having to come the whole hundred percent to be with you in your context. And um, mm. the Maori world can offer a whole bunch of people different expressions of what it means to love or grieve or laugh or eat, um, which mm. I think yeah really um, build on our relationship. So. Yeah, there's Etahi Fakaro Pakukoho, Thank you very much for your time today. Uh, thank you for your your encouragements and your challenges. That not just for everyone, but even for me personally, uh, I'll be going away from this and, and thinking a lot about things. So, um, yeah, Kilda, and we look forward to seeing where this journey takes you next. Yeah, cool, bro. Always yeah. always keen to catch up, and um, love to see you on your journey and hear poetry, bro. Awesome. All right, thanks heaps. Kilda. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and really appreciate Takaridi's insight into what it means to truly live and work in a way that honours the treaty. I love the way he spoke of valuing every culture, but making sure that room is given to them all. And that means there's work to do for those of us who have never had to leave our culture at the door. I also learnt that if I ever look to change my name, I will definitely keep my wife in the loop. But seriously, this conversation has left me with a lot to think about, and hopefully has been both inspiring and encouraging for you as well. Next episode, I talk to blogger, writer and podcaster Aaron Hendry about the work he does supporting the homeless rangatahi, or youth, of Auckland. We talk about his work, the systems and attitudes at play, and challenge some widely held assumptions and stereotypes. It's another fantastic conversation that will leave you inspired. Until then, me inoi tato.
e tō mātou matua i te rangi, kia tapu tō ingoa, kia tau mai tō rangatiratanga, kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua, kia rite anō ki tō te rangi. Humai kia mātou ai nei, he taroma mātou mō tēnei rā, mūro mātou harā, me mātou hoki e muru nei i o te hunga, e harā nā kia mātou. Aua hoki mātou e kawea, kia whakawaia, e ngari whakorangia mātou i te kino. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.